Please be seated. That's lovely music, isn't it? Prepares the heart and the mind and the spirit. Let me share, a, a, or, or say this. We're about to look at John 17, uh, verse uh, 13. This is the midway point of this prayer. There are 26 verses, and this is verse 13. And we're going to pause for a moment and look at something very surprising. And that is the joy of Jesus. And it was well illustrated to me. I want to point out that one thing I noticed about the VBS this week was how tired people were getting. I mean, 50 kids, 40 kids, it just wears you out. And, uh, but I always saw, saw a sense of happiness and joy among them. And that's what I've seen in this congregation since I've been here in May. And a lot of things uh, go on, too. I was just noticing we were enjoying vacation Bible school downstairs, and uh, it was air-conditioned because the deacons jumped into action and got another 15-year-old unit replaced that had uh, bit the, bitten the dust. And we're comfortable here this morning because a lot of work in replacing the huge unit that uh, air conditions this big building, uh, this big room with the high ceiling and new thermostats to help make it comfortable. And then I went downstairs and we had, because uh, the lower level is uh, under the ground somewhat, and uh, you know, we got water draining and we found two of the Sunday school, children's Sunday school classrooms that were moist on the edge of the drywall and had some mildew. And so again, they sprang into action removed the drywall, replaced the drywall, mudded the drywall, sanded the drywall, and painted the drywall. So when you go downstairs today or last Sunday, you saw just new classrooms and you wouldn't even know anything had happened. That kind of stuff uh, just goes on and you drive up here and there's, how many acres do we mow here? 15, 16, 17? So every week uh, the grounds are taken care of. And uh, you come in here this morning to worship, and the sanctuary is all set up and ready to go. Uh, my wife and I have been involved in church planting, and we would meet in schools, and you would have to get there early and uh, set up. We started a church in Minneapolis, and we actually had two set-up crews. Well, why would you need two? Because we met in a school, and they didn't pay to plow the snow that falls abundantly in Minneapolis. So we would pay for them to plow the parking lot, but that didn't include all the sidewalks. So we had a crew that got there early enough to shovel all the sidewalks. Then we had a second crew that got there that unloaded this huge trailer with all the handles and nursery equipment and sound equipment and everything. And, uh, and then we loaded it all up afterwards and left. And the church was growing rapidly. And so I would say to them, how do you think this place gets set up every Sunday morning when you walk in and it's all ready to go. And someone said, well, leprechauns. We just figured that there were leprechauns that came out on Saturday night and did all this work. So there's a lot of work that goes on that we don't see, and we want to publicly express our appreciation for all that unseen work that takes place that helps us in a comfortable, safe, 
lovely environment. But again, every time I saw that, it seemed to be going on within an environment of joy and happiness. Because you come to this thing, and, and Jesus is praying here, and it's interesting what is missing. Uh, his words here to his father, Jesus prayed to his father, and now he's praying for his followers. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Now here he is, he's between the upper room and the Garden of Gethsemane, and the thing that surprises us is that he uses the word joy. Notice what is missing. There's no whining. Why me? There's no whimpering. How am I going to make it through this ordeal? There is no muffled sob. There is no cry of complaint. He uses the word joy. And it can be defined different ways. Sometimes joy is contrasted with happiness. That happiness depends on circumstances. Hey, I got a bonus. Hey, the sun is shining. Uh, something happened good, and therefore I'm happy. And if something happens not good, then I'm sad. And that certainly makes sense because the whole of human existence is emotions that are like a roller coaster. And then they've contrasted that with joy, which is dependent upon not on circumstances, but on certain rock-solid bedrock truths. And so joy doesn't change. But then another definition I saw is joy is sustained happiness. In other words, it doesn't depend on circumstances going up and down. It's just a flood that keeps on flowing. It's not like a freshet or a creek. You know, when it rains, it floods, and when it doesn't, it's dry. It's just a continually fed, you know, like a bubbling natural spring that comes up from hidden resources, and it's always bubbling, whether it's drought or whether it's raining. Joy. And that's what I've seen, you know, and since I've been here with a lot of what people do, there's just a sustained joy. Uh, no whimpering or whining or, you know, why me and why not someone else? No complaining. Uh, just going on and doing it. So we want to talk about that this morning. But let me <clears throat> uh, do this too because this uh, fits in with that. On page uh, 12 at the bottom. I worked, my wife and I worked with Interim Pastor Ministries, uh, international organization that helps church uh, become strong during transitions. We're usually... Uh, in the location about 12 months and we go through a five-step process everything is on the table and we're trying to look back and look around and then look forward uh, what things need to be addressed immediately or long range and then what recommendations do you have and one of the questions uh, we have to ask is well what's God's plan for the church uh, what size church does he want it to be what kind of church what are the characteristics what are the values and we get into purpose, mission, vision, values, strategy, goals, objectives, budget, facility, target audience, target community. Just a lot of uh, giving units, giving per unit. There's just a lot of stuff that goes into it. But usually we spend our first quarter, first three months there, uh, getting to know the people, the church, and the community. 
because it's kind of presumptuous and it can even be harmful to start guiding and giving recommendations until you know the history of the church, the people in the church, the community. And then after the first quarter, and that's where we are, May, June, July, we start moving into uh, the, the, the second phase, or really the third. The first phase is looking around, getting to know things, and then making some immediate recommendations if some things need some immediate uh, attention. And then we move into the phase where we set up what's called a transition team. And that's a group of eight to 12 people that, you know, that uh, I pick and recommend and then the uh, elders approve. And it's not the search team, it's just an ad hoc special group of people uh, that's diverse in gender and age and outlook and in different ministries of the church. And I lead that for three, four, five months and everything is on the table and they look at everything back, uh, past, present, and future. And then they start making recommendations to the leadership, and the leadership responds. And then we come up with that, and then we present it to the whole congregation. And the congregation gives feedback. And then uh, usually we end up having kind of a vote of the congregation. Do we agree on all this? Because out of that comes a, uh, answers the question, what kind of pastor do we need to lead us to what we envision the next one, five, and ten years. So you've got to answer the question of where we're going before you can answer the question, what kind of person, what kind of pastor do we need to get us there? You see the progression there? And so that's what the transition team helps to do. But also, we've had meetings with the elders and their wives. We had a dinner, what, two or three weeks ago? And then last night, we had a dinner with the deacons and their wives. And we started going through some of this with the leadership. And now we want to go through some of it with you as a congregation. And it was uh, suggested that, well, in, every, in August, we have this adult Sunday school class where we all meet together for the month of August. Why don't you use that? And it was a good suggestion. So you have here in your bulletin on page 12, the August adult Sunday school class is going to go five Sundays. And I bring it up now, two Sundays out, so that if you can, plan to be here those Sundays. Because in this room, we're going to be going through some of these topics. Church size and God's will. What size does God want this church to be? And what are the implications of that for structure and for leadership and for the next pastor? Purpose, vision, vision, and values. The role of the congregation. The role of the leaders. Call, character, duty, and doctrine. So we're going to go through all that, and I want to give you a heads up uh, during the month of August. And uh, during that time, we'll be putting in place the transition team and letting you know who, who they are so you can pray for them. They'll go to work. In fact, if you're interested in being on that team, uh, you're welcome to either email me. My email, I think, is on the back page. Well, I, I say what? The church email is there. Is there an email on here? No, we got the phone number. Uh, you can send it to, uh, what is my email? <laughs> it's, it's Jerry C, right? Jerry C at graceep.org. Jerry C at graceep.org. Or secretary at graceep.org. And either one of those will get to me, or you can follow me at the church and say, well, I'm interested in being on that team. And I'll be glad to interview you. But what we're trying to do is get a balance of age, gender, 
uh, different people in the church, uh, different personalities. And so I may say, man, I'd love to have you, but you're like, you know, the 10th female. So uh, I can only have four or five. But you might be the perfect person to round out that team. And then that team will go to work, probably meeting about twice a month, and then they'll start making recommendations, and you'll hear that coming down the pike. So that by uh, winter, uh, hopefully we'll have all that stuff behind us, and we'll pass that information on to the search team, uh, pastoral search team, and they will have before them a profile agreed upon by the congregation of the kind of church we think God wants Grace EP to be in one, five, and ten years, and a profile of the kind of pastor we need to help lead us there. And then you can see how that speeds their work up because they know what they're looking for. They don't have to spend a year doing what uh, we just did. So I invite you on Sunday mornings during the uh, Sunday school hour, uh, beginning at 11.15, to uh, join us in here, and we'll be covering some of these topics. Where's my sermon? Now on page nine, I know what made me think of this. Uh, this is uh, verse 13. It's right in the middle of uh, what's coming. He's prayed, Jesus prayed for his, uh, to his father, now he's praying for his followers. And it's called a high priestly prayer because Jesus is interceding. Well, then we ask ourselves, well, for whom is he interceding? Well, he's interceding for his apostles. He says, not one was lost except one, so he's praying for the 11 now, because one has been lost. But then he says, I pray for those who will hear through their word. And down through the chain of history, on continents for 2,000 years, that word has come down, and here we sit this morning, and he was praying for us in this prayer. Those who believe through hearing this word, hearing their word, the apostles. And here we are studying the apostles' word because Christ and the Holy Spirit graciously made sure we had written down what they taught. But there's another reason this is called the high priestly prayer. And this occurs in Hebrews chapter 7 where the author is talking about priesthood. And he says um, Israel had a lot of priests. And they did a lot of ceremonies. If you read the Old Testament, book of Leviticus, all the things in, they had to do in the temple. And he says, but Israel had a lot of priests. And he says this, there were many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. So if a church lasts 100 years, it has more than one pastor. Why? Because they die. <clears throat> Uh, you have more than one set of elders because they die. In fact, over 100 years, probably just about everybody in the pew will be new. And the same problem with priests. Uh, they couldn't continue in office, and it's because they died. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. You see the difference? Because he lives forever, he rose again from the dead, and will never die. He has a permanent priesthood. So the high priestly function he's exercising in John chapter 17, he now carries on in heaven. In fact, it says, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. 
Therefore, he is able to save completely to the fullest those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. See, Jesus said, I have to leave. I'm leaving my disciples here, and they're going to face the world and the devil. But, Father, I ask that you protect them. Well, why do you have to go? Because I'm going to the temple in heaven before my Father so that I, the eternal priest, risen from the dead, will be able to intercede for them forever. So this high priestly prayer that he prayed at one point in time for his apostles, disciples, and for us, those who believe through their word, is the same Jesus that was resurrected and is now in heaven before the Father praying this same prayer and many more like it for his people. That's how we are protected and that's how we are blessed. Fallen people in a fallen world with the devil prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. There's no way we would survive if it weren't for the Father's protection and Jesus interceding for us. So when we talk about the high priestly prayer, we're talking about a prayer that is going on even now before the Father. Because Jesus lives forever, he can intercede for us forever. And that is how we can come before the Father's presence. So what does he pray here? We're right in the middle of it, and we've drawn out some interesting truths verse by verse. Some deep, you know, got a little deep, waist deep a time or two, and it will more. Next week we're going to talk about the world again. Let's pause, because in the midst of all of this prayerful intercession is this shining diamond. I was reading about Justin Bieber. I try to keep up. It's a chore. He got engaged, not to Selena, but to some other lady. Broke my heart. No. And he bought her engagement ring. And the article I read said he bought one so that he could see her face in the ring. That's how big it is. That's a big ring. This verse 13 is that big ring, that diamond shining in the darkness. Did you buy a diamond ring ever or lately? And you go into the jeweler, let me show you. And he takes it out of the case, and then what does he do? He takes a black velvet cloth and lays it on the counter. And then he looks up, and all those very bright lights are shining. And then he puts the ring right there. And the light is shining, and it's sparkling, and that black background gives it that shine. And you say, wow. Look at that. This is that glittering diamond in the midst. It, it, it just knocks us over because Jesus says, my joy. He's saying goodbye to his apostles. He's saying, all of you will desert me. The head apostle will deny me three times. They're going to take me away and judge me unjustly. They're going to scourge me. 
they're going to hang me on a cross, and then the worlds, the sins of all mankind, is going to be poured out on me. And it's going to be so horrible that the Father is going to turn his back on me and forsake me. And then I'm going to die. The Son of God is going to die. And then I'm going to rise again from the dead. And in the middle of that, he says, my joy. What? What did you say? How about my sorrow? How about my suffering? How about my tears? He says, my joy. And notice how he says it. I'm coming to you now so I can be the intercessor. But I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. What kind of joy was it that could shine out in such a dark place, in a dark circumstance? Let me give you three things, something surprising, my joy. First of all, Jesus was joyful, number one, because he always did the Father's will. He said, I do nothing except what the Father tells me to do. He even said, I don't speak anything except what the Father tells me to speak. Every day I rise and say, Lord, Father, what is your plan for me today? What steps do I take? His joy derived from the fact he was doing his Father's will. There's no greater joy for a human being than to feel like I'm doing God's will for my life. And there's no more dangerous place for a Christian to be than outside of God's will. Jesus always did what the Father told him to do. And that was a source of his bubbling joy. Isn't that true for us? We have general things and then we have specific things. Very generally, our purpose in life is to glorify God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If we are doing his will and fulfilling that and bringing glory to God, then we are doing his will. And then he says, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. Teach and observe everything I've commanded you, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's our mission. And if we are doing that in life, then we have the joy of knowing we are doing the Father's will. That's why we have churches, because we can do that much more effectively together than we can separately. And then we start getting specific, because all of us have different backgrounds, personalities, experiences, outlooks. And we start asking against the spiritual gifts. Well, what is my job? Now, that takes a little more work, doesn't it? It takes some study. It takes some trial and error. You know, how many of you want, well, thought maybe God was calling you to children's ministry and, you know, uh, uh, kindergarten, and so you agreed to teach a kindergarten class? How long did you take you to figure out that you weren't called to do that? I say that because there's some people called to do that, and I'm just amazed at how well they do it. And I've done that, you know, because for the church I was in, I was always the fill-in person. 
So many times I've been down on my knees in my suit because someone didn't make it that morning. And every time I appreciated more and more that God caused people to do that. <laughs> Jesus had joy because he always did his Father's will. And knowing he was fulfilling his Father's will was a source of joy to him. Let me tell you a second source of joy. He always trusted the Father to be powerful and perform what he promised. Think about the whole life of Christ. It came because of an eternal covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As the Father and Son and Holy Spirit spent billions of years examining different plans to bring the most glory to the triune God. And they decided on this plan. That's why we know this is the best of all plans, because this is the plan they decided on. This is the best of, not the best of all possible worlds. That comes in the future, after this phase is over. And they said, here's the plan. The Father will plan the glorification plan. The Son will provide the payment necessary, and the Holy Spirit will apply it. Payment necessary, yes. We're going to give the Son a group of people for his very own that his death will pay for their sin so that God can be both just and the justifier of those who believe in Christ. And the plan required the Son not only to become a human being, but to live under the law in a century where he was repressed by the Romans uh, persecuted by his own countrymen, you realize, do you, don't you, that Jesus never had running water or flush toilets or aspirin or a shower. He lived under all that. He kept the law perfectly. And then he allowed wicked men to put him to death. Who raised him from the dead? God the Father did. He did all that trusting that God was powerful enough to keep his promises. And he was trustworthy enough that he would do what he promised he would do. When Jesus said on the cross, into thy hands I commend my spirit, he was ultimately saying, I trust you to keep your promises to me. That was his, joy, his, his source of joy because he never doubted that God was going to fulfill his promises. And see, our whole Christian life is built on the promises of God. If you confess your sin, he is just and faithful, just and faithful, and will forgive you of your sin. To as many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. We trust that promise, and then we are willing to give our lives, our time, our talent, and our treasure to investing, believing that God is going to fulfill his word and keep his promises. And see, that's what I saw in the vacation Bible school this week. People working with children, some they knew, some they didn't. And doing what? Sharing God's word, memory verses, lesson plans, singing, crafts, everything, every way, every which way. And people doing all these different things. And all doing it with the trust that God was going to honor his word. And that one week of four hours a day in those children's lives was going to do like my friend in Vermont and change his life at eight years old. So that 50 years later, he's still 
serving God and remembering when he became a Christian and that verse penetrated his heart. He may not remember the teachers. He may not remember the songs. But he remembers God's word that was poured out into his heart. God made that happen because these are not magic words. These are words that the Holy Spirit uses to penetrate the heart. And see, that's a source of joy to know that your faithfulness will not go unnoticed and to know that your obedience will not go unrewarded and to know that your efforts will not be ineffective. That this church, as feeble a light as it is in an overwhelming world of darkness, will yet shine brightly because God will honor his word and his promises and his people. And that gave Jesus the joy to do his ministry. And in the middle of this prayer, say, my joy. I'm joyful because I'm doing your will, no matter how terrible it is right now. And I'm joyful because I know that you will keep your word and your promises. That's why it says on the front of your bulletin, sing to him a new song, play skillfully and shout for joy because... The word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all that he does. So number one, he did his father's will, and that gave him joy. Number two, he trusted God to fulfill his promises, and that gave him joy. And number three, it says in Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. I love scripture because it never pussyfoots around. What was the cross? Shame. Don't call it noble. Don't call it sacrificial. It's all those things. At base, it was shame. To be publicly executed and displayed on a cross for all to go by and mock and look upon your pain and your suffering and your slow death. That was shame. To be rejected by all of his countrymen, that was shame. To be denied by his apostles, that was shame. To have the sins of the world, all our terrible acts and deeds, all of our unkind words, all of our impure thoughts, all the times that we didn't keep God's word, to have all that poured out on him, that was shame. He endured it because of the joy that was put before him. And what was that joy? That God would keep his word, that God would accept his sacrifice, that God would raise him from the dead, that God would give him the highest seat, and that all knees would bow. And that he would be given a special people, handpicked by God from all eternity. They were yours, you gave them to me, and I have revealed them to you. And they would be his for all eternity. That unlike angels can say, he is my Lord because he paid for my sin. For the joy set before him. For those three reasons he had joy. And then quickly, let me mention to you, that full measure of joy is something we must seek. Until now, you've not asked anything in my name. Asking, you will receive, and your joy will be complete. See, Jesus says, I say these things so they have a full measure of joy. 
John 15 talks about abiding. He wants us to seek him, to seek his will, to understand his word so that we can obey and fulfill his will. And by seeking, that's how our joy grows. He wants to be sought. He wants to be considered worthy of our efforts. And that's why we worship and pray and serve and fellowship and give. It's all means of seeking God because he is worthy to be sought. And that is when he gives us joy. And finally, it's something we share. Notice what Jesus said. I say these things. I say these things. We get the impression there he's praying out loud so his apostles can hear him pray, so they can remember his words and write them down and share them with us. You see, his life was a life of sharing because joy has this peculiar trait. It is fulfilled when it is shared. That's the whole purpose of creation. The love and joy of God was multiplied and fulfilled when he created creatures and then shared his joy with them. Jesus' joy was fulfilled when he spoke those words and shared it with his apostles and with us. And look what John says in 1 John. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. I'm sharing with you because that completes my joy. You see the full circle? Jesus did the Father's will. He trusted the Father. He endured the shame for the joy set before him. His joy was fulfilled by speaking, by sharing. John's joy is fulfilled by sharing with others, so I write it down. See, I'm getting a great deal of joy from being able to share God's word with you this morning. And I saw all those people working in vacation Bible school and fixing drywall and air conditioning, experiencing joy because they were following the Father's will, because they were obeying him, and because they were sharing, and they were trusting him to give the increase. It's just an incredible diamond sparkling right here in the midst of darkness. It's the joy of God. It's the joy of Jesus. And he says, I want your joy to be fulfilled. And he shows us in his life and his teaching how to do it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are amazed to hear about your joy in the midst of your trials and tribulations. Father, we know that your son Jesus was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief and yet he seems to have carried his trouble on a flood tide of joy like an endless spring that could never be quenched and then he says Father I wanted that joy to be in my people Father show us where Jesus' joy came from and then give us that joy through following your will trusting in you and seeking that joy. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. To head out into the world, we remind ourselves to remain and to be and to share that joy.
And we can remind ourselves of that by singing hymn number 604, Rejoice Ye Pure in Heart. We'll sing verses 1, 3, 4, and 6. Again, hymn number 604, verses 1, 3, 4, and 6. Rejoice in your in heart, rejoice, give thanks and sing. Your festal banner wave on high, the cross of Christ your King. Rejoice, 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 give thanks and sing. Verse 3. With all the angel choirs, with all the saints on earth, pour out the strains of joy and bliss, true rapture, noblest mirth. Rejoice, 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 give thanks and sing. Yes, on through life's 